0: God our Father, from the great gifts that you've given us, we give back to you this small portion. All the blessings, all that we have, all that is good comes from you, Lord God. And so we pray that you would use these funds, Lord God, to extend your kingdom here and around the world. And we thank you for this blessing in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God's You know, there's all these subjects, literally, you know, I, I, of course, know hundreds of pastors uh, and have worked in ministry all my life. My dad was a pastor back in the day, so, you know, so I absolutely never wanted to do one thing in life, and that was be a pastor. (laughs) But I do know the rules, right, because I knew these guys, even guys that were very prominent, successful, and they said there's some subjects you better never talk about from the pulpit, There's an assortment. There's more than you would think. Uh, But here's the thing. This is the church. And the word of God is alive. And the Bible speaks to all times, all contingencies, all situations. We don't want a Bible that's stuck in the near Asian East 2,000 years ago. That's a hymnal, but you get what I'm saying. (laughs) 2,000 years ago. (laughs) You know, if the Bible turns out to be a book that's only good for 2,000 years ago, it ain't good for much. Now, there's a lot of stuff that's been going on. Maybe you've watched the news recently over the last three or four months, right? And one of the major issues that I keep getting asked about is the issue of race. Now, this is dangerous stuff because there's all these different understandings of it, even that have come from the Bible and even that have come from society and that have come from the sciences But the Bible has its answer to this question, and I'm telling you right now, it is not a popular answer. I tend to find that Christians think it's a possible until they go talk to somebody about it. So we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. We're going to go all the way back to Genesis, but first, I'm going to show you the ball like I usually do. Here is a verse from the book of Galatians written by the Apostle Paul, chapter 3, verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So that's where we'll start. Let's pray. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Lord our God, and Father, as we look into these deeper things in your word, we know, Lord God, that it is a great privilege and honor to even be able to hear these things. But we also pray that you would grant us this extra gift, Lord God. That you would give us the ability to apprehend it, to receive it, to make it a part of our thoughts, our heart, mind, and being, Because you are our love and our life. And we thank you for this blessing in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So nothing wrong with going all the way to the beginning. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's enough for us this fight in just about any university. So if you think the Christian answer is so popular, spend some time in the university. In the beginning, you know, we're going to be having uh, a a lot of the folks here have said, why don't we do some more apologetics type stuff? So once a month, we're going to start having apologetics meetings, not only here, but around. It's going to be a traveling roadshow. And the first thing we're going to go into is the cosmological argument. And the cosmological argument, by definition, is the argument of the initial causes and meaning of the universe. So it's like a big question, right? To say that in the beginning, God is not uncontroversial. We've got a universe, and we're kind of stuck with it, but how did it get here? And under what means, and it doesn't does it require something as intelligent and powerful and personal and thinking, having a will and an intellect like a God to bring about the things that we see in the kind of conditions that we see then? Well, Christians have always said yes. The only real convenient answer to that question that actually fits is something that's so much like God, that if you don't use the word God, you're just playing the game, right? God is the necessary condition for everything that we see. And other people say, eh, it just happens. Universes just happen from time to time, and so do people. These are the two answers that are really grappling through not only the politics of this country, but the politics of the entire world, and I would say they've been grappling with each other from the very beginning. But here it says, God created, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the darkness from the light. And he called the light day, and the darkness night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the very first day. And it talks about his creation of many things, but it really focuses on the creation of the highest creation of God, by his own estimation. And the thing that pleased him the most was that he created a human being different from everything else in the creation. Different from the plants, different from the rocks, different from the animals. Created in his own image and likeness, he created Adam. Because Adam could think God's thoughts after him. And Adam had a will that could distinguish between good and evil, right and wrong. Adam was a communication of God, but also, in a very lesser sense, the offspring of God. The child of God. And so in that, we see, in verse 23, At last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So, the person that was made for it, he had already seen everything in creation, all of the animals, and all of the amazing things that God did. And then God is the one that says, you know what? There's nothing in all creation that really completes him. He needs a helper suitable to complete him. Now you have to remember, this is before sin, this is before the fall, and he was walking with God in the cool of the day. You would think he was pretty much complete, right? But what God teaches us here is man was not made complete in and of himself. Men and women together complete each other. They're not even sufficient for themselves if they're alone with God. Because Adam needed Eve before he had fallen into sin when his communion with God was perfect. And so God designed this incredibly crazy weird system that we call the family, right? Right? Men and women are bound together by a sacred vow, and they walk together through time, and they create people with their own faces to walk around on the planet. And they come out of your own body, which is weird enough, right? And then they get married, and now you're family with people that you don't really like. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But you're bound together in family with them, and they marry other families, and they marry other families. And it goes down through history, people creating people after the image and likeness of God. But for the fall of sin, which brought us into a place of depravity. It broke us. Every broken relationship you've ever had has been because of sin. Every sickness you've ever had has been because of sin. Every war has been because of sin. Sin is what came into us and broke our relationships with God and our relationships with each other.
1: So that as we walk down through these steps of history,
0: we have a crisis. And the crisis is the separation of mankind from their creator, If only things were right with God, things would be right with each other. But things aren't right with God, so they can't be right with each other. As we continue, we get to a place in Genesis chapter 12, where the Lord calls Abram, a long-time descendant of Adam. He says, Abram, go from your own country from your kindred, that means your family, from your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Let's always remember that from the very beginning, Adam, Abraham wasn't just promised the, prom- the promised land. He was promised in every family on earth would be blessed through him. And this is something that they really focus on in the New Testament, but is latent all the way through the Old Testament text. We start to see the issue of race coming up in the Old Testament on an ongoing basis. Because at first, it's pretty easy to see that all of Adam's descendants were related to Adam, right? Then, we get even to things like, you know, the, the confusion of the nations, but before that, we get to Noah, where God wipes out the entire world except for eight people, and, presumptively, they're all related by blood or marriage, right? Four boys, four girls, related. All of us are descendants of Adam. All of us are descendants of Noah. So we're all related, right? By blood and marriage, all the way back to the beginning. This causes a crisis in the sciences, especially in the 17th and 1800s. When you had different people, scientists, usually with one finger on the Bible, but most of it on their own experience, trying to explain the existence of races and different nations and things as they were to be interpreted without God or the Bible itself. So here's a famous thing. How many of you are Caucasian? How many of you are from the Caucasus mountain region in modern-day Turkey? Attached to the Black Sea. Because that's what that means. There hasn't been anybody that's really believed that white people are Caucasians for at least hundred years or so, right? The entire categorization of the Caucasoid, of the race that came from the Black Sea region, right? It's a myth. They just made it up and put it in the science books. Because in those days, science was that somebody had a cool idea. The Caucasoid, the Negroid, the Monguloid, these are things that were made up in the sciences, especially in the late 1700s, 1800s, in the German universities, of guys that had never been outside of their own country, and yet they understood with depth and gravity all of the natures of the different races and what they did and what they didn't do, and obviously the paler your skin was, the better you were. Cool for the Germans, not so much for the rest of us, right? Also, that one finger on the Bible was just enough to throw in a few biblical phrases to make it look like it was kind of Bible-y, but theirs was just a normal human observation of the world as if they started with it all themselves. And of course, in there, latent and getting stronger and stronger up until the time of Darwin was really, we're all monkeys anyway, or just really cool monkeys with a fat cerebellum, right? Not only that, but some monkeys might have been a little more advanced than other monkeys, and that's how we got the races, right? I'm telling you, that's not the Bible story, right? We've already seen a little of the Bible story, and the Bible story is that there is one race, lots of differences, but one people on earth. It all got a little serious in Numbers chapter 12. And y'all know about Moses. He's probably the second most famous person in the Bible, in the Old Testament, after Abraham. And Moses is the person who brought the people to law. But he had to leave Egypt because he killed an Egyptian, right? And what, what country does he go to? Out of Arabia. Midian, right? Where he meets his Midianite wife. Always kind of a bit of an issue. She was a little better than him in theology, which is why she circumcised their sons, because he forgot to do it, right? Then she dies, and he remarries. And anybody remember who he marries? Right here in the text. Miriam, Moses' sister, and Aaron, Moses' brother, spoke against Moses because he married a Cushite woman. Anybody remember where Cush is? Modern-day Ethiopia. Now, here's the thing about it. The strong presumption of the the, the text is she was a black girl. And they were mad. Right? And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses, he was very humble, more than all of the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three of the tent of meeting. And they came out, and the pillar of clouds stood before the entrance. Hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision or speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. I speak to him mouth to mouth. Now you know who's getting dressed down here, right? Miriam and Aaron. God's saying, you guys think you're prophets? Because I spoke to you in a dream. When I speak to Moses, we speak face to face. Me and Moses hang out. You're against my boy Moses. You're against me. Then leprosy falls on Miriam, and her entire body turns white, like ash. And she's stricken with leprosy all over her body. And until Moses prays for her and gets God to forgive her, she's going to die of it. And so the intercession happens there, but these things go on. You remember Joshua, right? What's Joshua famous for? He fit the battle of Jericho, didn't he? Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. Nobody knows this? I mean, he this oh, it. You know it, Pete. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. He went in to conquer the promised land, right? And he sends two spies into the walled city of Jericho. And one person saves them from their death because she is called by the Lord. And what was her name? Rahab. Rahab. What do you think the odds are that Rahab was a nice Jewish girl? living in the walled city of Jericho when the Israelites come to attack. About zero, right? She was a Hittite, she was a Canaanite, she was something like that, but she loved the Lord their God and she protected them and what happens afterward is she survives the battle and she marries Salmon. Now Salmon is a descendant of Abraham and so she comes into the race and the interesting thing is They have a child named Boaz, and Boaz turns up in the book of Ruth. How many of you read the book of Ruth? Very short read, awesome read for the providence of God and how he does what he does. Now, the reason that Ruth has a book named Ruth, even though she's not Jewish or a Hebrew by race, is that she had a mother-in-law named Naomi. And when the economy was bad, Naomi and her sons went off to a foreign nation. And while they were living there, they married wives of that nation. And they both died, and and Naomi had to go home, and when she did, Ruth said, you know what? Now, you're bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Your people are my people, and I will go with you wherever. And so Ruth goes back with Naomi to Israel, but they don't have any people. All their men are dead, and really, they're going to starve to death. And so they go to a distant kinsman named Boaz, and eventually Ruth marries Boaz. Boaz to Boaz, whose mother Was Rahab. And they have a son named Obed. And Obed has a son named Jesse. Remember all those vague Christmas verses about the Jesse? The splinter of Jesse and all that stuff? Because Jesse has a pretty famous son. Anybody? King David. Not only his grandmother, but his great grandmother weren't Hebrew at all. They weren't of the genetic lineage of Abraham. And they're written right into the text here. And they go on, and David eventually has to have an heir after his line, right? Who's the most famous king Israel ever had? David. But his sons, it's a mess. It is a bloody mess. Mainly because God gave him a rule, which is don't have more than one wife, and he decided to go for 42. And it never left his house. It was so bad. Okay, so let moving look. Uh, but when David is older, not when he's young. He was young. He was so holy. He was so precious, right? When he gets older, he starts to get a little loose. He's been successful. He's won a few battles. He's going down in history, Right? He's hanging out, all the other guys are going to war, he's on his rooftop checking out chicks. And he sees one named Bathsheba. Now Bathsheba is a Hittite living there. And her husband's name is Uriah. Uriah the Hittite. The reason he's named Uriah the Hittite and not Uriah the Hebrew is because he's a Hittite. But he had converted to the Lord. Here's the thing. Could people pass in and out of the people of God? Could they become Hebrews even though they were physically descended from Abraham? Absolutely. And there are laws in the Bible that says exactly what you're supposed to do when somebody wants to join the people of God. Because really, race in the Bible is kind of a technical thing. Was Abraham of a different race than all of the other people in Ur of the Chaldeans? It even calls him Abram of Ur of the Chaldeans, of his father Terah's house, right? So they were just Chaldeans, and God picks one of them and says, I'm going to make you a nation, make you a race. Not because he was genetically distinct from anyone else, or even of blood, but God can just do that. God can just do that. And so he takes him out, and David takes Bathsheba after her husband is killed, and they have a son. And what's his name? Solomon, who wrote books of the Bible. And through Solomon's line comes a certain very famous New Testament figure named Jesus. Now, if you think I'm reading too deep into the text, the Bible doesn't actually call these people out. Let's take a look at the very first chapter of the very first book of the New Testament Matthew 1 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron. And Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. There's Salmon. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. This technical thing, when there's something in the Bible, it's never for no reason. This book is jam-packed with not only authenticity, but specificity. The only woman they name is Rahab. Now, what do you all think the odds are that's a happy mistake? And Boaz, the father of Obed, by who? Ruth, if you've been passing this by, every time you open the New Testament for the first time and read Matthew, the first chapter for the first time, if you've been passing by the specificity and the meaning of the fact that they put these in here, you're missing a lot, because they're here on purpose. And they're here because they're not Jewish. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. He doesn't leave that out. One of the great things about the Bible is it shows everybody warts them all, right? Nobody rides for free. There's like two people in the Bible that get a pass because they were pretty okay. You know, Job actually didn't sin, right? There's like Josiah. Who is it? Who's the other one? Everybody else, it shows all their sins, all their failings, all their weaknesses, so that you don't get the idea that you're special. Everybody has fallen. Everybody is sinned. And in the beginning of this book, to establish the inner line of Jesus, They mention the conflict between David and Uriah the Hittite and the fatherhood of Solomon, who is Jesus' physical ancestor through Mary, by mentioning Bathsheba. It's all on purpose. It's what you're supposed to get from the text. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation. So here we get to starting to understand that the Bible is going to address this issue That in the beginning there was one race and God broke up the races on purpose as a consequence of sin. But in Christ they're all being drawn back together in a very weird way, right? Galatians chapter 3 verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Acts chapter 10 verse 34. God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. These are New Testament verses. Acts 17. And he made from one man every nation of mankind who live on the face of the earth. I know we've been trying to talk as hard as separation between races, but it doesn't actually exist. In the Bible, you've really got two races, the race of Jesus Christ and his blood, and everybody else. The Bible doesn't care where people come from, what they look like, what kind of language they speak. He says he's drawing together a people into himself from every nation, tribe, race, and tongue, which means language. One people for himself, from all of them. You kinda of gotta decide at some point in your life which nation you're really a member of. Where is your citizenship? Is it in the Lord Jesus Christ, or is it in all this? Because this is all going to burn. This is all going to pass. It's all going to become dust. Colossians chapter 3. Have we not all one Father, and has not God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? chapter 10 verse 12 for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved in Acts chapter 10 and he said to them you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean." Now, the actual question that I've usually been asked is this, what am I supposed to think about Black Lives Matter? And as I look around, a lot of you are giving me the eye, because you're like, is he talking about me? No, just about everybody has asked about this. You can't get off the news without asking. And I've been on lots of panels and interacted with a lot of pastors, Black, White, and other, about Black Lives Matter, and this current movement that's coming through the country. Okay, let me give you the short answer on this, all right? There is a political organization called the Black Lives Matter Global Network. It is a political organization whose ideas and intents are largely, but not always, contrary to the design of God for the human family and the judgments of God in regard to our relationships with one another that we find in Scripture. It is a political organization. It is not a people, it's not a tribe, it's not a race. It's a political party. Then there's the idea that the lives of black people actually matter. And as a Christian, you better be on board with that one. Right? You can distinguish between these two very easily the political machine it's churning through. The millions and billions of dollars to try to transform your nation from one that's highly influenced by Christian values and has freedom of religion and freedom of conscience and freedom of commerce, that is probably the greatest nation that has ever existed in the history of the world. <coughs> They're at war with that. But that does not mean that if you have a black friend, you would stand there and you would say to them, by the way, I think your life does not matter. That sounds a little crazy, right? Can we distinguish between the idea that all people are created in the image and likeness of God and worthy of dignity and respect from the idea that some people that have seized upon this phrase and are trying to destroy a nation might have some bad ideas? The Bible doesn't teach communism, it teaches freedom of commerce. That each people should, person should be able to work hard and gain property, whether in the form of money or land or possessions. And increase their place in life so that they can give, not only to their family and the next generations, but give to the entire community and the world. The Bible is a free market book. It might as well have been, you know, some parts of it might as well have been written by Ludwig von Mises and, and F.A. von Hayek when it talks about the way that you can't steal from another person even through taxation. The Bible is not communist. The Bible is about freedom. It even gives freedom of the individual in conscience and matters of religion, which is kind of a hard thing for some folks to take. Does the Bible ever say, let's force everybody to be Jewish? Does it say, let's force everybody to be Christian? No. As a matter of fact, because the Bible is a Calvinistic text, it it assumes you can't really force people to have faith. It's a gift of God. When he gives it, they will have faith, and if he holds back on the gift of grace, they will not. So having freedom of religion and having freedom of conscience is a very specifically Christian thing. If you want to know why people are yelling people down and won't allow them to have freedom of speech, it's because we're really the only people that believe in that. Let me tell you something that's a little harder to take. Christians are really the only people against racism. (laughs) To be able to say that all races are of equal value and dignity, you must have a belief in a God that created him in his own image and likeness that confers upon them the status and value of being a human being. (coughs) Otherwise, no lives matter. Life itself doesn't matter. We're just a hiccup in a universe that nobody can explain. None of y'all matter. You're just... Animals are monkeys with complicated forebrains, right? And so then all politics is reduced to power. What well, we really want is more money. But we really want is more power. We want to control you. You controlled us. All through history. It's kind of a history of slavery and warfare, isn't it? Every empire is coming in, conquering every other empire. The only empire that has ever advanced through the grace and mercy of the offer of the gospel is Christianity. If there is one answer for the problem of race, and for the problem of nation, and for the problem of culture, it is in the person and work of Jesus
1: Christ. I promise you, it's not going to be through political—it's
0: not going to be through politics. They can't solve a problem like this. They can't even understand a problem like this. So it's either going to be constant war until the end of the world, or until entire races are extinguished. Or it's going to be people coming together in Christ and calling each other brother because we both share the same God. Not the God of these people against the God of those people, but the one God that created us all, right? So here's the thing, because I know a lot of you are kind of nervous about this. You should be able to, in good conscience, without affirming a bunch of junk and political nonsense that you don't want to be involved in, you should be able to tell a person in good conscience that you agree that Black Lives Matter Now here's the thing, why do people get mad, black people get mad when you say that all lives matter? Because they feel that they have a special right. Right? Mexican lives matter, right? But we fought a war and we took California, I lived there, it's nice. Black people came over in slavery, on ships, kept in chains, civil rights only really happened at its ultimate extent in the 1960s, so it's a recent right. So when they say black lives matter, let's kind of understand that what they're saying is, in a special way, we need you to remember that we matter too. Right? That's why when people say all lives matter, it's obviously true, but people still get mad. I'm not telling you what to say or what not to say, I'm just telling you why people say it, right? So, With my black friends, of which there are many, I have an easy time agreeing with them that Black Lives Matter. Most of the time, I won't go and march. And the reason why isn't because Black Lives Don't Matter, it's because those marches are run by Black Lives Matter. The political organization, and I don't want to be seen as endorsing their entire program and charade of communism and the overthrow of the country. I got a Bible here and I'm bound by the Word of God, and so if people think I'm a racist just because I won't go on a march, but I'm thinking, hey, if you're going to follow the Bible, lots of bad things are going to be thought about you. And after they're thought, they're going to be said about you. And frankly, if the history of the world has told us anything, you might actually end up in jail. At the same time, God is good and he wins this battle. He doesn't win it with guns. And he doesn't win it with fire. And he doesn't win it with riots. And he doesn't win it with blood. But he wins it by the preaching of the gospel from one person to another by the power of the Holy Spirit, transforming the heart from hate to love. Doesn't he do that? We'll see if you guys fire me after this, (laughs) sir. Stranger things have happened. Lord our God, we want to pray that you would just be with us during this time, during this tremendous upheaval of the nation, where people against each other and people are trying to use our differences to separate us, Lord God, and you would have us with everyone as much as it has to do with us. We praise you, Lord God, for the great opportunity that you've given us. The opportunity, Lord God, to transform the world through the preaching of the gospel. And we know that at the end you succeed, but the time between here and there is going to be interesting. So we praise you for all of these blessings in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please rise as we sing number one in your hymnal. Jewish man, and he's beaten up by robbers and he's left by the side of the road. And then a Levite comes by, and it's like a priest, he's you know, a pastor. And he walks by and he doesn't help him, he keeps going. And then another priest comes by and he doesn't help him either. And then a Samaritan, a dirty, stinky, smelly Samaritan comes by, right? Who's not one of the people. And he lifts him up. And he carries him, and he takes him to a hotel, and he tells him, take care of it. I'm going to give you money to take care of it. If it costs more, I'll come back and give you more. And Jesus asked who his neighbor was. And they answered, the one that loved him. That was his real neighbor, right? And Jesus says to them, go and do likewise. Because his definition of a neighbor is not everybody the way it's always taught. In the general evangelical church is the one that loves you, who cares for you, and treats you right. Look up and receive the blessing. May the Lord your God bless you and keep you, May his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. <laughs>
2: You heard what I said. I was hoping that they would. She's she was like no, I'm like, my back hurts from gravity. We, like, like sure yeah, go fast and, and i and then and then like, and and like, this is so cool. That would hilarious. That was so funny. She awesome. yeah, was like, I love it.
1: I am like, I'm talking
2: music and I'm like, Am to meet you! She already had done it one time when it happened. We caught her. had to send over. Give me. She's I love it. <laughs> i about <laughs> <Right, right, right. laughs> <laughs> it. i takes so much. <laughs> I'm like, I'm scared. I I've got my first chance. Yes. 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 Yes i <laughs>